So we are in uh, the third week of a five-part series where we've been going through uh, verses that have often been quoted. And I chose these verses because they're often quoted out of context. And what I mean by that is not that they're always quoted wrong, but that most of the terms in these verses or the context in which they were originally uttered or the promises that are being made, we often assume the meaning of these things and we don't spend that much time trying to make sure we're right about those assumptions. It's not unlike the verse which I almost put on here, God is love. Very oft quoted from 1 John 4, 6, uh, great verse. But what does love mean? Uh, we all assume we know. Love means whatever I think it means. And that's what God is. And I think the work of trying to sit at the feet of the prophets and apostles is the work of trying to redefine in their terms what we have already assumed we understand in our terms. It, we have to kind of confront the Bible as though we're coming into a foreign context, learning a language that we don't really know. Now, we may be somewhat familiar with it, but we have to allow the terms in these verses to be defined by their own context and not by our assumptions. So uh, tonight we're going to look at a verse that uses the word tithe, and tithe has been used in the church for a long time. The word tithe has been used for a long time uh, in the church in the West, and when I say that I mean the church in Europe and America. And so all of us have heard the word and we've used the word. Some of us practice something that we associate with this word. Some of us don't practice it, but think maybe we should, and others think that they'd rather, but we, but the assumption in all that conversation is that we know what it means. And I was shocked to find, maybe you'll be shocked to find tonight, what the tithe actually was in the First Testament. And it's in all those books that we tend not to like to read, which is probably why the word tithing is often mistranslated into our culture, because you have to read Leviticus and you have to read a lot of Leviticus, and you have to read Numbers, and you have to read Deuteronomy, and you have to read Exodus. And isn't it so much simpler to read the manual of the Church of the Nazarene? <laughs> or the one verse from Malachi. Now, we're, this is not particularly a sermon about giving, I mean, a lesson about giving, um, but we could make it about that if you ask the right questions. But it is a, a lesson about Malachi 3.10 and what's at stake in that passage. And it's a profoundly important passage but we have often mistook it. So I want to add, I'm going to read this verse just briefly, and uh, then we'll go into some of our preliminaries, and then I'm going to ask you a question that you cannot possibly be wrong about, and that's simply, how have you heard this preached, taught, um, not by necessarily pastors or even Sunday school teachers. Some of us were taught this in our own homes. I'll share my own uh, experiences too. So be thinking about the first time you were exposed to this concept of tithing and how it was explained to you and what you expected from it, if anything, why we did it. Just think about that. We're going to start with where you're all starting from, what you've been told, and then we'll work our way back to what God told the Israelites about this practice and how he wanted it enacted. And then we'll talk about what it means for the church. And uh, it's not always so easy to connect those dots. But here's the passage. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you'll not have room enough for it. So a couple of preliminaries before I ask the question I just threatened to ask. Uh, 
you can see them here. Uh, what does the Bible say about its own inspiration? What does the Bible claim about itself? We've been talking about this each week. We'll do it one more time uh, this week. I'll always have these verses, but I won't, for the, the last two, I won't make comment on them. The Second Timothy passage reminds us that one of the purposes of Scripture is to help us to live right. That it's about right living. And, and that's an important distinction for us to draw because oftentimes we think the Bible is about right thinking. Um, sometimes we think it's about simply salvation. The, Bible, the, the scriptures are just here so that I can know how to be saved. And if once I've got that information, then they're of secondary importance. But the scriptures insist about themselves that they have been preserved for right living. Now, not that the other things aren't important, but that's what 2 Timothy says. Second Peter tells us that scripture is primarily an interpretation of history and that that interpretation did not originate in any human heart or mind, but that somehow they wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that's Second Peter. But what's important there, well, lots of things are important, but what's important for our emphases is that it's an interpretation that's inspired. There's a lot bound up in that. Because scripture talks about history, but it is not primarily history. Now, that's not to say it's ahistorical. It assumes the history of the events that it's talking about, Abraham, the flood, um, uh, Joseph, uh, the, the period of the judges, uh, the conquest of the land that preceded that, uh, Ruth. I mean, it assumes these are real historical figures in a real history that really happened. But to admit that is not to say that the Bible is a history book. That's not what Second Peter says anyway. Second Peter says that it's an interpretation of history and that it's the interpretation that's inspired. That's essential for us, not because we want to dismiss the history, but because we don't want to dismiss the interpretation. And in our context, and I don't know how many of you have fallen into this, but certainly I was educated into this in several contexts, that what's important is the history. We want to know what Jesus really said. We want to know exactly what happened in Exodus when God was delivering the people from slavery in Egypt. And the assumption is, give me the history and I'll interpret it for myself. You tell me what Jesus said and I'll tell you what he means. You tell me what happened to Moses and I'll tell you what it means. But the Bible is frustrating to those folks because the Bible doesn't provide the history so easily. What it provides is the interpretation that we'd rather not have to deal with. But to say that the scripture is primarily an interpretation is to say that whatever the prophets thought the event meant is God's word. Not the event, but what they thought the event meant is God's word. And interestingly enough, in higher education, even Christian higher education, that's exactly the part we don't think is authoritative. Paul might be wrong. I hear it. I heard it all the time in my education. So just a point to remember what the Bible says about itself. John and th those two passages, 2 Timothy and 2 Peter, are about the First Testament. John is more about the New. In John, the eyewitnesses claim, John principally, that Jesus promised them that when he sent them his Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would teach them all things, and remind them of everything Jesus had said to them. And so there's an authorization Jesus gives to these eyewitnesses to tell his story. It's really verses like this one 
that are the foundation for why we have a New Testament and why the 27 books written during the time of the Apostles became authoritative for the church. So those are just some background things. What does the Bible say about itself? And, uh, you know, we debated it a little bit on the first week. We won't do that now. So if you're interested in that conversation, we can have it later. But here's our passage. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. How were you taught this verse? How have you come to So some have used this idea of seed faith, that uh, what you give, God will multiply, and you'll hear things like you can't outgive God. I've heard that. Uh, plant your seed, uh, bring the money into the storehouse, and you'll reap reward. Certainly prosperity gospel folks have used this, as though this is sort of a, how, how are they understanding it? If they're right about that, then they're kind of understanding this like a, a universal promise or a universal principle. I'm sure others were instructed in other ways. When I was taught tithing, I was taught from the time I made money, from my first allowance I got, we had to put 10% away and give it to the church, which my dad made sure we did uh, every time the off offering was taken. And my dad never brought us to this verse in that context, so I was taught tithing without this verse. I came to this verse later. Uh, maybe some of you had the same experience. But the assumption in my family certainly was that God expects us to, to relinquish a tenth of our earnings uh, to his work. I certainly was instructed with that from the time I was young. What we want to ask about this passage are these questions at least, these four. What's the occasion of this promise? Um, what's happening when God makes this promise? And what exactly is he promising? What is God promising precisely? What is the tithe? What did that include? We said time, treasure, talent. Others have talked about finances. What is it biblically? What did God say the tithe was for? What was it used for? Did it have a particular use? Was it collected? How was the tithe collected? Um, these are all questions we have to ask to understand tithing in the First Testament. And what is the storehouse? Why is it important? Uh, what did it mean? I know the church likes to say the storehouse is the local church, but yeah. since churches didn't exist when this was written, I'm probably pretty sure that that's probably not what it was. But what was it? And is there some sort of a connection? Interesting. So here's the context. I'm just going to read a little wider passage from Malachi first so you can see some of the issues that are coming up because they're all related. And if you think, why are we reading this? This has nothing to do with the tithe. Everything we're going to read has to do with the tithe. Matter of fact, I could have gone back further. It just would have taken a long time to read. And every single issue in Malachi is related to the tithe. Uh, but this will be sufficient to give us a wider context. So this starts in chapter 2, verse 17 of Malachi. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he's pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. We're actually in that fulfillment in Mark right now in our preaching series. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he'll be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. 
So I will come to put you on trial. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. So you can go on and on. Uh, in, in it, after this, he's going to talk about who the truly faithful are and, and how you can know them and how God knows them. So we're in this section of the prophets. Malachi is the last prophet of the First Testament in our order. He prophesies the coming of Elijah, which is fulfilled in the coming of John the Baptist, and he prophesies the coming of the Savior, who will come to the temple and judge it, and we see that happening in Jesus. So a lot of interesting parallels with where we are at present. And this is a book often read in the days of Jesus, because it was one thought to be preparatory for the coming of the Messiah. And tithes and offerings are here, but there's a lot of other issues too. Right, that are raised, the care for the poor, widows and orphans, uh, this idea of aliens, um, illegal aliens maybe, <laughs> all that sort of thing. So why does that have anything to do with the tithe? And I insisted it did, and you might have thought, no, it doesn't. These are just different contexts. God's just really upset with them about a lot of things, and he just made a list that it's all about tithing. So we'll get down to what this is. So the first occurrence of the Hebrew word that's translated tithe, and the word is ma'asar. Ma'asar. It means one-tenth. That's all it means. Ma'asar, the first time that occurs in the Bible is in Genesis 14.20, and it's outside the law of Moses. Um, uh, Abraham, it's the story of Abraham, and Abraham has gone to rescue Lot uh, while some kings had conquered him and some other peoples in the region, and Abraham puts together a little alliance of nations, and they all go and attack the nation that had kidnapped, or the set of nations that had kidnapped Lot, and they're victorious. And not only do they conquer, but they also uh, take booty. Uh, they, they loot the, the nations that they defeat. And so they're coming back with a lot of spoils of war. And Abraham runs across this king of a town called Salem. His name is Melchizedek. And Melchizedek um, means uh, king of righteousness. And he's the king of Salem, which is the city that eventually will become Jerusalem once David conquers the land. So it's a significant site. And whoever this Melchizedek is, um, Abraham gives him a tenth of everything that they, that they, all the spoils of war he's taking back from the battle. So this is long before the, the time of Moses that the first tithe occurs. And it's just a spontaneous offering from Abraham to this Melchizedek. Uh, so that's the first time. But... The tithe becomes a part of the law of Moses. And here we have a few passages 
um, in which it's spoken about. And it's pretty difficult to figure out exactly what the tithe was, how it was enacted, um, and all that sort of thing. And there's actually quite a debate among scholars. But I'm gonna, you're going to be scholars tonight because I'm going to give you all the passages that they wrestle with. So here's Leviticus 27. It's the first occurrence of the actual Hebrew word tithe um, in the Law of Moses. Leviticus 27, 30 to 33. It says a tithe, well actually the word occurs earlier in, the, in this passage, but here's the summary statement. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It's holy to the Lord. Whoever would redeem any of their tithe must add a fifth to the value of it. Every tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. No one may pick out the good from the bad or make any substitution. If anyone does make a substitution, both the animal and its substitute become holy and cannot be redeemed. So here's the fundamental premise of the Law of Moses. Now you've heard it said, right? You've heard it said? I've heard it said. That God owns everything and he lets us use 90%. You've heard that? Yeah. The Law of Moses actually never argues that. It actually argues that God has given us all of it but requires a tenth to be set aside for him. Uh, so a little different perspective than we're sometimes told. Though ours does sound more pious, it won't be found in the law. Numbers 18, at least never when they're talking about the tithe. Numbers 18, and, and remember, that's rooted in creation, that God gave the earth to people. He made us to, to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, to have dominion over the earth. So of course it's legitimate philosophically to say everything belongs to God, and you'll find that sometimes in the Psalms. My point there was a bit tongue-in-cheek, but I mean it, uh, it earnestly, that when the tithe is being talked about, the Bible never uses the language of everything belonging to God and us just being allowed to use a percentage of it. That's just not the logic of tithing in the Torah, and that's all I was really trying to say, though it's often sometimes our logic. This is Numbers 18, so this is the next time tithing comes up. And here, many of you are familiar with this passage, at least those who were talking about what the tithe was for, because here's the passage that comes from. I give to the Levites all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance, in return for the work they do while serving at the tent of meeting. From now on, the Israelites must not go near the tent of meeting, or they will bear the consequences of their sin and will die. So this is the moment in which the Levites are being set apart. And only they now are allowed to minister in the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, what will eventually be the temple. Up until this point, the Israelites had kind of free access to that. But now the special priesthood is being set up, and that's what's happening here. It's the Levites who are to do the work at the tent of meeting and bear the responsibility for any offenses they commit against it. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. They'll receive no inheritance among the Israelites. And all that means is that uh, when we talk about the 12 tribal allotments of Israel, the Levites don't get one. That's what that means. They don't have land. They get some cities, though, but that's another conversation. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. They will receive no inheritance among the Israelites. Instead, I give to the Levites as their inheritance the tithes that the Israelites present as an offering to the Lord. That's why I said concerning them, they will have no inheritance among the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Levites and say to them, when you receive from the Israelites the tithe I give you as your inheritance, you must present a tenth of that tithe as the Lord's offering. Your offering will be reckoned to you as grain from the threshing floor or juice from the winepress. In this way, you will also present an offering to the Lord from all the tithes you receive from the Israelites. From these tithes, you must give the Lord's portion to Aaron the priest. You must present as the Lord's portion the best and holiest part of everything given to you. 
Say to the Levites, when you present the best part, it will be reckoned to you as the product of the threshing floor or the wine press. So you and your households may eat of it anywhere, for it is your wages for your work at the tent of meeting. By presenting the best part of it, you will not be guilty in this matter. Then you will not defile the holy offerings of the Israelites. You will not die. We'll get back to that, but there's right. So Deuteronomy 14, 22 to 29. This is the one I guess we're less familiar with since nobody mentioned this when we were talking about the tithe. The numbers one seemed to win the day. Well, here's Deuteronomy. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain. What do you do with it? Eat it. Wow. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. But if that place is too distant, and you've been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe, because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is so far away, then exchange your tithe for silver, and take the silver with you, and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. And do not neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns. So that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigners, the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns, may come and eat and be satisfied. And so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So there are a few things we can glean from tithing in the First Testament, and some of this is a bit uh, derivative, I guess, but you, we can talk about it. First, there is the assumption that a tenth of everything produced in the land belongs to God, that it is his, and uh, he requires it be set apart for him. So that is in that first passage. Secondly, God set aside the tithe for the Levites, uh, that is, for the tribe assigned to care for the tabernacle and the temple. Third, the Levites were to tithe from what they received to the family of Aaron, the high priest. Fourth, the tithes followed, apparently, this is from the Deuteronomy passage, a three-year cycle. I'll write this down. I'll write this down. So apparently there is a three-year cycle that repeats. Um, and then the seventh year, if we had gone on and continued reading in Deuteronomy, the seventh year is the year that all debts were canceled. So you had to cancel all debts. So you have a two, and these two, you're eating the tithe. And on the third year, it is set aside for what? Local storehouse. Local storehouse, so it's not brought to the temple. And who's it for? Levites. Levites. Widows, orphans, fatherless. Widows. Orphans and foreigners. So you have this three-year cycle, and then it repeats. Okay. So this is the law according to Moses. Now scholars debate exactly how this was going to work. Uh, the the trajectory of interpretation that I follow, um, and you have to decide whether you like this or not, but it makes the most sense to me is those scholars who believe that we have twelve tribal allotments, and so any given year. This tithe for Levites, widows, orphans, and aliens is going to be in effect. But only four of the tribes will do it any given year. So they, every tribe is on a three-year cycle, and they're not all the same cycle. 
So every year you have four tribes setting aside all of their tithe for the purpose of caring for Levites, widows, orphans, and aliens. And they're doing it in their towns. Why is that important? So the storehouse in that context would be in their towns mm -hmm. in this third year. Well, yeah, because the temple, first of all, aliens can't come to the temple, so it doesn't do you any good to store food in a place they can't go, right? And, and this is, and Levites, now these are Levites, Levites are on a cycle also. Not all the Levites take care of the temple any given year. So some Levites are back living in cities they've been given. They have no land, but they're given cities. And they're living there while other Levites are at the temple. Now the Levites who are serving in the temple don't have a problem because sacrifices are made there every day. And they're allowed to eat a portion of all the meat that's sacrificed there. Plus they're receiving any free will offerings and other things people are giving. So while the Levites are taking care of the temple, they're good. But when they're, when they're on their off years... They're virtually living in poverty among the nations, uh, the, the tribes of Israel. And so that's what this tithe is meant to care for them, along with widows, orphans, those who can't own or occupy property on their own, and aliens who also have no tribal allotments in Israel, so they can't have any land. Aliens could work, but they, they couldn't own. So this is the cycle that they're on. And uh, is it interesting to you, and, and, and you brought this up, Charlie, that for two years, they're supposed to save up their tithe, bring it to the temple, and eat it. Why? Have a party, right? Have a party. Now, of course, anything they brought to the temple, the priests were allowed a portion of it because you see those rules in Leviticus. So it's not that the priests didn't get to eat these tithes. They did. They celebrated with the people. But it was primarily for the people to eat it. So what they had to do, and there was a storehouse in every town, and then they would gather up all that food. They had three pilgrimage festivals every year where they would go to the temple, and they were to bring their tithe each one of those seasons. So they probably did this three times a year. And uh, they would bring it all to the temple. The priests would get their portion of it, according to the rules of Leviticus, and the people would eat it in a grand party at the end of the year. Now, why would they do that? Well, there's a lot of different reasons. But one of them is uh, that the tithe they brought was an indication of the blessing of God or his curse. So if they came to the temple with almost nothing, it means that there was almost no product, which according to the law meant they were living in sin. And they were reminded of it every time they came. Now, if they had been living righteously and God had been blessing their produce, then that party was huge. And so their party at the end of the season was a direct indication to them of their loyalty to God. And so this is the process that they were in. And every third year, they had to sacrifice that entire amount for these disenfranchised folks. And like I said, I'm with the scholars who think that they were on a staggered schedule of sorts. It makes sense, but we don't know. Nor do we know if Israel ever actually enacted this. But what we do know is that God, according to Malachi, is upset that they didn't. And there's one particular tithe in Malachi's line of sight. He's not saying they didn't do these two years. He's saying they didn't do this one. And that's how we, he says earlier, right? I mean, if you read the passage, that he's accusing them of not taking care of widows and orphans and aliens among you. So the tithe they're withholding is not the party tithe. The priests are fat. 
read the beginning of Malachi. They're getting fat on this stuff. They're giving the priests plenty. But what they're not doing is taking care of those who can't take care of themselves. That's the tithe he wants in the storehouse. When he says the whole tithe, he doesn't mean they're giving 8% or 7% or 4%. He means they're giving the tithe they eat and they're not giving the tithe that's given away. Bring the whole tithe all three years into the storehouse. Don't skip year three because you don't like how it's used. When God says this to Malachi, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. What is he commanding? What, what's with the food in the house? Yeah, God, I mean, the storerooms apparently in the temple are not, uh, not full. They're either being eaten by priests or not given at all. So there needs to be food in the house. But it's more than that, isn't it? Because the entire nation is suffering. God's refusing to bless them because they're not doing this. Yeah. This is an accusation that rolls out of all the prophets, in fact. If Amos comes to mind immediately, but numbers of others, Isaiah, Jeremiah, that the principal reason that God condemns the people of Israel is not... What, what, what have you come to believe the real reason, the principal reason, the number one... Let, well, let's say, I don't want you to rank according to an arbitrary criteria, so let me say this. Which accusation against the people of Israel is most frequent in the prophets? Which one of their failures to obey is the most frequently cited by the prophets as the rationale for God's destruction of them? Idol worship? You think idol worship because that's Isaiah. It's absolutely the number one in Isaiah, but only there. It's care for the poor. Number one, by far, by far, he attacks their failure to observe Jubilee every 50 years, where all the land that had to be sold because of debt wasn't given back. Matter of fact, in Isaiah, uh, the passage Jesus reads um, when he says uh, the scripture is fulfilled in your presence upon the beginning of his ministry is a passage about the Jubilee, the year in which all prisoners were to be set free. All the land that had to be sold because of poverty or indebtedness or whatever else had to be given back to the original owners. That was Jubilee. It was supposed to happen every fifth year, every 50th year. So you have your, your cycles of seven for the tithe. Seven times is 49, and the 50th year was Jubilee. So this is all tied together. Jesus says that he comes to initiate a year of Jubilee. And he, that passage in Isaiah claims the Israelites never did it. So here again, that's a great passage, Matt, to point out, because Jesus' accusation is, Jesus' assumption isn't that they shouldn't be tithing. It's that they should do the whole deal, which is the same accusation that's here in Malachi, and it's in the prophet Amos. It's in uh, all of Elijah's ministry, really, in Kings. It's in Jeremiah. It's in Ezekiel. I mean, these constant claims. Matter of fact, you can multiply their years of slavery based on how often they gave the land a rest every seventh year. Uh, and you can multiply the time of the Gentiles by how many jubilees they myth, missed every 50th year. So all that is multiples of their failure to keep the law. So uh, the storehouse then is not a mysterious thing. It's very simple. It's the place where the tithe was kept until the time in which they were either to bring it to Jerusalem or to distribute it among the Levites and the widows and the orphans and the aliens. So it's just the place they stored it. So every town apparently had one, because on the third year they kept it in their towns. And then there were temple treasuries um, where they were, you know, when the people brought them, they were stored. So that's all the storehouse is, um, but it's not simply the temple. 
That's important because some of our interpretation of this requires it to always be the temple. And that's important that we know that. Um, how does it connect with God's discussion of the wicked priests and the failure to care for the poor earlier in Malachi? We've already talked about that. Um, this is the portion of the tithe they're withholding. Now, that doesn't mean they're not giving it. Maybe they are giving it. All, all the, the same amount as would be given all three years, but they're not distributing it as God wanted it to. And here is, again, an important principle in the prophets. You either follow God's guidelines to the letter, or you're disobeying. And the, the prophets are insistent on it. Everything. You either do what I tell you, or you're worshiping another god. That's the idolatry claim. That's where Isaiah comes. Isaiah's big accusation against the Israelites is that they are getting creative with their worship of God. They, they, they are kind of taking liberties. They're deciding how to worship God. And they think because they're in his temple, that's Jeremiah's claim, or because they're worshiping the right name, Yahweh, that they automatically are worshiping the right God. But God is always insistent through the prophets that I know who you're worshiping based on how you worship, not on what name you say. And you worship Yahweh when you do what Yahweh tells you to do. If you say you're worshiping Yahweh, but you do what Baal tells you to do, then you're worshiping Baal. If you say you worship Yahweh, but you do what you want to do, then you're worshiping you. If you say you're worshiping Yahweh, but you do what Asherah wants you to do, then you're worshiping Asherah. So God says, forget the names. You know, maybe God would sing the song more than words. <laughs> Good. Nobody knows that song. Come on, 80s folks. So, so if we're to build an application from the context, the first thing I want to observe about tithing, now some will hear this whole thing and say, well, obviously we don't live in Israel. We don't have a temple like this. So maybe this, and we're not under the law. So maybe all of this stuff is just secondary and it's just not part of the new covenant church. Well, that's problematic because remember, tithing started long before Sinai. Moses tithed to Melchizedek. And the book of Hebrews claims that Melchizedek is a king in the order of Jesus. So we have that, that interest connect, interesting connection. So this impulse to give out of uh, what we earn is one that precedes the law. So it didn't start with the law, uh, so it doesn't really end with the law either. To, so to say simply that we're not under the law of Sinai, which I constantly say, is not the same thing as saying the tithe is no longer in effect for the church. That's a different conversation. But whatever we think of in terms of tithing in the New Covenant, probably should be thinking more in terms of Melchizedek. But that doesn't mean these principles don't fall into place. So if we're to build an application from this context and we hear the words, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you'll not have room enough for it. Now, think about creative connections. Because obviously we're living in a different time. Obviously this is a promise made to Israel, but what's very interesting to me is it's made in Malachi. Why is that important? There is no nation in the days of Malachi. So the whole process can't really be fully obeyed in his day. I mean, he's living after Nehemiah and Ezra have reestablished a presence in the land, and Jerusalem's been rebuilt, and there's a temple. Um, but there, the tribes are not there. Ten of the tribes are gone forever. 
Uh, all that we have left really are a few Levites in the tribe of Judah. So we're not living in a time in Malachi where they could have fully obeyed this to the letter of the law. That's important. But there's something about the tithe that they did preserve. And God would have preferred that they preserved another part of it. So they had preserved the parties. But they had forgotten the poor. So that principle should carry out. And if you don't think it's in the New Testament, boy, you've got to think about Paul. Paul went around to churches trying to raise money for who? For Jerusalem, for people who were in a famine and had lost everything. And so Paul is calling on that old principle. But of course, he's, he's talking to Gentiles. Paul's going around Gentile churches. So he can't just say tithe. Gentiles don't know what he's talking about. You know, I mean, you don't say to a Gentile, you've got a tithe according to the law. And they'll say, what law? There's no tithe in Rome. I mean, they take like 80%. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so Paul has to explain to them in other terms, terms that would be more familiar to the Gentiles. And so when you see him talking about it, he talks about uh, giving and setting aside a certain amount and making sure you're consistent with it. I mean, that's Paul's talking to people who don't know what he's talking about. But Jesus does talk of the tithe, and Jesus seems to be similar to this, except he has kind of, he hasn't erased this poverty, but he's added some things to it. Who does Jesus want to see taken care of? in the kingdom. Certainly widows and orphans. We see that in James. We see it in Jesus' behavior. Certainly aliens and foreigners. We see Jesus interacting with Romans, Gentiles, Syrophoenician women, and others. But there are more that he's adding on that they would never have thought to put in. Well, children are interesting. Yeah, though the children would have been cared for by their families in these days. I'm thinking um, tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes. There are all kinds of people, like these people are excluded from God's assembly by their, by, their, by their context, by the things that have happened to them in their lives. But there are a whole other set of people who are excluded from God's assembly because of choices that they've made, or sins that they've engaged in, or lifestyles that they've chosen. And there does seem to be an impetus in Jesus to reach out to those folks. At least we see him doing it all the time. These are captives, right? The year of Jubilee was supposed to set free. So there is a sense here in which Jesus is expanding the watch care the society is supposed to have over the marginalized. And we're to think of the marginalized not just in terms of economic marginalization, which we certainly are, but also spiritual marginalization. Matter of fact, reading with those eyes, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount makes a lot more sense. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, we've spent, I, we talked about this before, and I want to get into the debate again, but we have spent centuries trying to convince ourselves that poverty of spirit is a good thing. Because why would Jesus bless a bad thing? But in all Jewish literature, including the First Testament, to be poor in spirit is a bad thing. To be spiritually poor is not a good thing. You were supposed to be spiritually rich. It's all through the Proverbs. Yet Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit in the kingdom. Not because... It's okay to be poor in spirit, but because his blessings are going to be so poured out that even the poor in spirit will be lifted up. So we have a very different kind of ethic going on with Jesus. And you'll notice that some of the things that we suffer in that list of Beatitudes are positive in the sense that we could be persecuted because of righteousness. But there are others that don't have anything positive assigned to them. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So the lavishness of the Messianic age, 
God is going to pour out so much blessing that we won't have room enough for it. But we are supposed to tithe it. Some of it's for us. Two-thirds of it is for us to celebrate with. But it's also meant for those who are outside of the camp. It's not just meant for us. I think ways in which we live this out are when we use church funds to serve the community when we don't get anything back from it. I think some of the ways we live this out is when we give away money to folks, not requiring them to be holy, but just because they're destitute. All these ways are ways that we care for the widow and the orphan. Now, it does all depend on the generosity of God's people still, as it always has. But we will never be blessed unless we use the tithe for what it's supposed to be used for. So you talk about ways in which you see this being applied. I've given you all the information. I mean, you can read lots of books, but they're just going to be fighting over the information you have right in front of you now. Yeah. So you can, say, you can see how like the Church of Nazarene has gone to argue that the local church is the community local storehouse. Right? You can see how they've done that. And they're trying to logic that out by then taking the local church, giving 10% to the higher church, which is kind of like the Levites tithing to the priests. Right? To Aaron's descendants. So, so it, it, they're trying to do that. But one of the things that we have to constantly be aware of is that the tithe is not all for us. That's the point I want to really drive home. It's not all for the church to do church things. It never was. The Israelites never had trouble with the stuff that was for them. They had trouble with the stuff that wasn't for them. And when Malachi is accusing them of not bringing in the whole tithe, He's probably, Israelites are pretty obedient people to a point. I mean, even in Jesus' day, they were very consistently tithing everything that came out of the garden and everything that they had. What they weren't doing is using it right. Like they, they, they were fine with the faithfulness. And Jesus said, you should have done the former without neglecting the latter. So he doesn't judge them for not being generous. He judges them for what they're doing with that generosity. And what's interesting, and this is theological, is that the 10% God claims for himself. He doesn't claim 100% and give you 90. That's not the way it's logicked out. He claims that 10% and says it's mine. If you want to eat my 10%, you've got to add a fifth to it. Did you notice that? You've got to buy it back from me for a fifth more than it's worth, if you want it. Otherwise, it's mine. That's interesting. How would we apply that? I don't know. But uh, <laughs> if you don't want to give your tithe and you want to keep, see, it's all money for us now. If that was food and animals for them, so a little easier to apply. But could you imagine that the money that you, that, that you uh, don't give to one of these laudable goals of the kingdom, that God is going to require you now to pay a fifth extra when you owe it back to him, that you're accumulating a debt? That's kind of the sense that's here. But one of the things that you want to remember is that the accusation of the prophets is that the wealthy got wealthy by neglecting these things. Yeah. Okay. And so there's an indictment Jesus has on the wealthy, not because it's bad to be rich, but how did you get it? And the rich young ruler clearly didn't get it himself. He's young. And in these days, land was inherited. So he, his family is indicted when Jesus tells him he has to sell it. His entire family line is being brought under the judgment of God. So how did they get that money? We don't know, but maybe Jesus did. 
and Jesus requires it all to be paid back. Now the question that that plays into our lives, if we really want to hear Jesus, which I think most of us don't, so we'll attack somebody who doesn't live here. Say like when you go to London and you see that beautiful city, rich and lavish buildings, hundreds of years old. It was built on the slave trade, on selling opium to the Chinese and making them all addicts. This is the wealth. So what would Jesus say? Well, this is the great question. What, what if, I'm not going to say he would say this, but what if Jesus says, tear it all down and give it back? Would a nation follow him? No. Yeah. Just like that rich young man, they would go away sad. Because we want to keep what we have and, and then move on. It's the same thing we do with sin. So I've often lived under the assumption that God does make a claim on 10% of what I have. But it's not simply money. It is everything I have. Um, it, listed specifically um, in the Torah is children. Children have to be redeemed. Your firstborn had, Did you know your firstborn had to be redeemed? Because it belonged to God? And you could redeem it and keep him. Or you could do what Samuel's mother did, and give him over to full-time service of the church. So that's Old Covenant law too. So it's not simply the things we eat or the things we consume. It's also the things that we have. So I've often tried to live into that, that God uh, makes a claim on 10%. You have to wrestle this whole gross and net tithing and all that kind of stuff. You just got to wrestle around with that. Uh, I don't worry about if the government takes money off the top. I don't, you know, that's their money. Um, and uh, we get whatever they allow us. But, um, but for me... Um, I do think that that consistent giving is something Paul was recommending in 2 Corinthians when he says that we should set aside an amount and we should be faithful in giving it. But what Paul doesn't do with the Gentiles, and we're all Gentiles, right? Anybody Jewish? All right. Well, I'm Gentile. So what, what Paul doesn't do with the Gentiles is, is reenact that law for them. He doesn't come in and make a mandated 10%, right? But we read the Bible, we understand that God claims at least that amount. But Paul encourages them to give as much as they can. And that's a kind of generosity that's different, right? So the way Jen and I kind of live this out is, and we've done this our entire married lives, um, we, we are very legalistic with the 10%. We always give that to the church. So whatever church we're serving in, we give it to whether I'm on staff or not, right? So we always did that. We're very legalistic with the 10%. But that's not the end of our giving. So, so for us, that's how we've lived this out. There are others who aren't quite there yet, and I've consistently said you need to set aside something. If you don't trust the church, that's fine, because the tithe doesn't depend on that. The church depends on it, so I would hope if you believe in what we're doing that you would give to what we're doing, realizing that if you don't, the buildings will fall apart, the pastor will move on, and other things will happen. So that's part of our corporateness. But all of it I mean, this is the, the tithe is, is to celebrate God's blessing, to give to his mission, to care for those he asks us to care for. That's what it's for. So uh, if you can't give to the church, you don't trust them, you think that they're crooked, you don't agree with the, the policies or whatever, you still should give. That's no excuse not to give. So when you think about giving and what it means, the principle that seems to be true, whether the law is in effect or not, is that God makes a claim on 10% of what we have. He makes that claim on it. But he doesn't own 100% and let you keep 90. He really has given the earth to us in a sense. And we're to master it, but he has claimed 10% to make sure we do what we're supposed to do, uh, which is 
to celebrate his blessings and to be able to quantify them and uh, to feed the poor and the hurting and the disenfranchised.